all, and welcome to this episode of the Food Focus Podcast, where we seek to discuss, challenge, and learn about issues relative to food. My name is Michael Masso. I'm a faculty member in the Department of Food, Agriculture, and Resource Economics at the University of Guelph, and I host this series of discussions with people with interesting and worthwhile perspectives on food, and I think that's particularly true well, it's always true. It's particularly true today. And my guest is Dr. Evan Fraser, who is the director of the Arrow Food Institute here at the University of Guelph and a tier one research chair in the issue of food security. I think most importantly, he's also someone who has interesting perspectives on food. And I always enjoy my conversations with him. Well, this is the first one I've recorded. I thought I would sit down with Evan this week and talk about food policy. Here in Canada and in other countries, we're hearing increasingly the need for a coordinated food policy. In the recent federal budget here in Canada, there was an announcement that a food policy is coming and that it's built on on four pillars. And, And the basic premise of my conversation with Evan is, what is a food policy and why does it matter? And is this particular one executed in a good way? And we both bring sort of perspectives to the table. So I think it's worth having a discussion and, and I hope you enjoy this conversation. Well, Evan, thanks for taking the time to speak to me today. It's my pleasure, Mike. I'm sure we'll have lots of other things to talk about in the future and I hope you'll indulge me in other things. But Given the attention we've seen around the food policy, both before and after the budget, and I've heard you speak about it, I really wanted to get a sense of what is a food policy and why does it matter? So a bit of a history lesson to start off with, and let's start with the last federal election. In the run-up to the last federal election, the NGO Food Secure Canada ran a campaign called Eat, Think, Vote. And essentially, it was a very simple model. They asked people to call all party meetings, all candidate meetings, and ask them five questions around food. And uh, it was Food Secure Canada's effort to put food on the political agenda because the perception was that food hadn't been on the political agenda. As a consequence of, I think, 120 Eat, Think, Vote events happening, and a number of cabinet ministers who were then sworn into Trudeau's government four years ago that that had participated in in these events, we were delighted. The the movement was delighted because um, Minister McCauley, in his mandate letter, was asked to create a food policy for all of Canada. So what is a food policy? A food policy for all Canada uh, involves sustainable agriculture and the conservation of water and soil and air. It involves better food access to ensure that there is healthy food available for all Canadians, acknowledging the fact that somewhere around 4 million Canadians experience food insecurity. It's about uh, the economic viability of the agri-food sector. And it's about food safety, making sure that we don't get bugs when we eat our food. And those sort of four pillars were articulated early on in the process as needing some sort of holistic overarching architecture from a policy perspective that would mean that food got the attention it deserved. Because up to that point, there was a little bit of health, a little bit of agriculture, a little bit of technology, a little bit of economic growth, a little bit of export. All those things were sort of aspects of food. But as a result, nobody had sort of a central focus on food and food sort of fell between ministerial portfolios. Okay. So... I understand all of that. And and I guess the question I would ask is all of those are important points, those four pillars. And and some might argue that there are other pillars that should be there. Do we make it more fuzzy by putting those four together rather than saying access to food is important? And we probably have some conflicting or maybe not conflicting, but at least some scattered, as you said, responsibilities throughout provincial and say, 
we should have a policy on food access rather than having a one built on four pillars within which you might argue that those things can get lost. Yeah, I, I think that's a very appropriate criticism uh, and is an interesting point because we have to acknowledge that any single policy on food will probably involve tensions or trade-offs. And an obvious tension or trade-off is the need to grow an export sector versus the concern that we have domestic food insecurity. And are those two things in particular in tension? If we don't have a food policy, something like an overarching structure to talk about these things and to, to govern these things, then uh, international trade may go and run with an export policy and uh, Health Canada may go and run with a poverty reduction strategy and they may be in opposition and they may not even know that they're in opposition to each other. And that's the way it's been all the way up till now. And that is perceived as not working. And so maybe we should try something to create an umbrella under which this conversation about these tensions and trade-offs can actually happen. So one of the things that, um, that I was involved in in discussions with the government in, in, in providing input to the government was in addition to developing program areas in those four pillars, they should also create a national food policy council that would be multi-stakeholder involving indigenous representation, involving industry representation, academics, and, uh, and, and NGOs, and report directly to cabinet as a way of at least explaining and articulating when trade-offs were happening, as opposed to having them happen inadvertently and without anybody really being aware of them happening. So was that part of what was announced in the budget or, or not? So when the budget was announced, we got a glimpse of what the food policy is going to be. We didn't actually get the food policy. And okay. I've, I've had it on, on good authority that the food policy itself will be announced in the next few weeks. So what was announced in the budget was a number of specific programming areas that more or less map into those four priority pillars that we talked about, health and environment, safety, access, and economic development, or growing, growing better food. They have different, nicer words for them, but there's those four pillars. And there were specific programming areas announced for those, mm-hmm. for those things, like, a, like a, the movement towards a dialogue around a national school lunch program, which will help address the access pillar trying to get better food for, for young young Canadians. Critically important. Critically, yeah. and, and something that, that Canada is is woefully behind on. Yes. We, we, we don't have a national school lunch program or school nutrition program. We're one of the only rich countries in the world that doesn't have that program. We talked about doing it. The last time we discussed this seriously at the federal table was in World War II, yeah. and we adopted a family allowance program instead of a school nutrition program at that time. So there's big areas that there are gaps. We will see if what the actual full policy looks like, I believe in the next two to three weeks to a month, mm-hmm. when, when the new Minister of Agriculture and Agri-Food makes an announcement that gives us the sort of the full picture, as opposed to just sort of, you know, reading the tea leaves mm-hmm. from what's in the budget about what the picture might look like. Yeah. So, so it's, it's interesting, and you anticipated well one of my questions. I mean, clearly, export promotion in terms of economic viability, you know, we've seen countries actually, Argentina as an example, when they were in a currency crisis and a hyperinflation, said we need money and we need to keep domestic food prices down. So they actually put export taxes on soybeans and beef, which made them a little less competitive in international markets, but actually kept food affordable in the market. So you, you acknowledge that tension explicitly. Does that mean we're going to have to do one or the other, or does it mean we need to at least think about what it means 
if we do one and how it links to the other? So I don't actually think those are in as much tension as they seem to be at an intuitively obvious level. It seems intuitively obvious that if we're exporting food and we've got hungry people, we should be able to stop exporting food and feed the hungry people mm-hmm. domestically. I, I actually don't think that that necessarily makes sense. I don't think that if we stop exporting canola beans and lentils yeah. and wheat, there will be less urban hunger in downtown Toronto yeah. or in the communities of the far north, which is where sort of food insecurity is highest in our country, because those are actually related to different issues. Yeah. So I, 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 I don't think that these are necessarily the, as obvious a trade-off. And one of the early workshops that I hosted here at the University of Guelph on this, and we were in the um, Ontario Agriculture's boardroom, and and I had, as guests that day, I had uh, Diana Bronson, who was the Executive Director of Food Secure Canada, and one of the most outspoken critics of conventional agriculture, and one of the biggest advocates for food sovereignty and local foods, local food security, sitting next to Ron Bonnet, who was then the uh, President of the Canadian Federation of Agriculture, yeah. and would be, in some regards... As opposite you can a person as you can imagine from Diana, yeah. and they completely agreed. They they I remember I remember Ron sort of laughing and saying, "Look, there's nothing incommensurate," and I'm misquoting him here, yeah. but there's nothing incommensurate about having a vibrant export community and reducing food insecurity in Canada. To reduce food insecurity in Canada, we have to work on social exclusion, economic marginalization, issues like uh, post-colonialism, and th- things of that nature. And, and at the same time, we can help our, our commodity producers, our beef producers, our, our lentil growers, our, our canola producers. We can help them become more efficient and competitive in the global marketplace. And those are, those are not actually butting up against each other as issues of policy. I would generally tend to agree with you. I mean, again, in the Argentinian example, there might be an argument for domestic food affordability on yep. some staples. But... Let's leave that aside. And, and, and I would say the Argentinian example is is a real outlier situation of a country facing a currency crisis yes. in hyperinflation. Yeah. And so what you would adopt as a policy instrument in that kind of experience is very different than what would be a normal policy environment. Yeah. And, and, and so, again, you could probably argue that there might be some small upward price pressure. But again, given the disconnect between commodity prices and retail food prices... I completely buy your argument that tension is probably not. Yeah, and, and not, the reasons for food balanced. insecurity in Canada aren't necessarily high prices, except for, say, in the North. Yeah. They're low wages, they're mental illness, they're drug addiction, they're household economic problems related to low incomes. Yeah, I mean, yeah, again, we pay a relatively, in the grand yeah. scheme of the, of the world, we pay a relatively small yeah. proportion of our income. I mean, that's easy to say, and it completely ignores the income problem. But then that gets back to the original thing that if that tension doesn't exist, do we cloud the issue by putting them under the same umbrella? Yeah, so that's the worry. I, I mean, and, and let's, let's, let's look at the, the risks. Any policy program, any intervention, any project, government yeah. project, implies risks. And I yes. would say one of the risks associated with the national food policy is exactly the one that you're articulating, that we throw so much stuff into one bundle that it becomes it becomes a sort of a, a, a gray soup that we can't distinguish anything from. To mitigate that risk, I think we need some sort of governance structure like a National Food Policy Council to actually provide a space to have this conversation. Because right now there is nowhere for government to become informed about these issues in a coherent, consistent, proactive, forward-thinking sort of way. 
So if the national food or if the food policy for Canada can do anything, I think it should provide a governance mechanism like a national food policy council to provide advice to government, to weigh through the evidence, to look internationally to best practices and to where we can draw from the Argentinian example. Mm. Or Scotland, for instance, has a national food policy. So the Scottish example and, and where we can draw appropriate lessons and where we shouldn't be drawing lessons. And, yeah. and I, and I, th- I think we need, we need a body like that because right now that kind of advice, if it ever comes to cabinet, comes in a very ad hoc, fragmented way that I think ultimately, well, I mean, the last 20 years it illustrates it's not very satisfactory. And again, I think part of it is probably not only conflicting priorities, but a dispersion of responsibility. We've probably seen in the last 30 or 40 years the role of a minister of agriculture, as an example, diminish. You know, in the 70s, everyone knew who Eugene Welland was, <laughs> right? It, it, yep. I mean, yep. the, the minister of agriculture was an important and high-profile member of cabinet. That might be a little bit less true today. Yeah, I think, I think agri- as agriculture has diminished as a proportion of Canada's GDP, the stature of the minister of agriculture and agri-food has diminished as a proportion. I would argue. Yeah, and, and, and perhaps I'm more cynical than you are, and I would say it's as the number of votes in agriculture <laughs> has gone down. Yeah. Rather, rather than GDP, that's become... Yeah, so ag as a percentage of GDP has gone down, number of rural votes has gone down as we've moved to become an urbanized society, yeah. and as a consequence, agriculture is less a part of the general awareness. And I think as we move into the 21st century where we are very concerned about the effects of global climate change, where we're very effects of the impacts of of population growth, and where we're also extremely aware of the opportunities presented by new innovative digital genomic technologies, uh, I think we're going to see a reversal of that trend and agriculture and agri-food will rise on the political agenda. And maybe the fact that this government is interested in creating a food policy for Canada is a signal that we are seeing an upswing in public awareness and policy importance on this topic. Yep, I would agree entirely. And I, and I guess, to me, the ones, and that deals with sustainable agriculture, that deals with the economic viability, it deals with the issue of food safety. To me, in that group, the outlier is access. And I wonder, I wonder if we cloud the issue. And again, perhaps I'm more cynical than you are, Evan. And I would say that if you aggregate things, it gives the governments an opportunity to say, look how much money we're spending on food. And rather than saying, look how much attention we're giving to access and look how much attention we're giving over here. It clouds the issue, and, and I apologize for my All right, cynicism. Well, no, no, no. Well, I'm going to put back you. So if we have an interest, uh, a return to interest in this broad area of mm-hmm. agri-food as an umbrella, yeah. if we have an opportunity to affect policy at a national level, yeah. and we are worried about issues of social exclusion and economic marginalization and yeah. income and being people being able to afford food, that access yeah. category, becoming muddied by association with all these production, sustainable ag-related stuff. How would you recommend playing cards? Well, again, and to me, it's about identifying sort of key priorities for us as Canadians. Yeah. What represents Canadian values? And access to food, I think you and I would both agree, isn't really about access, isn't really about having food deserts, although there's probably an element of that. It is about economic opportunity. I totally agree. We've got the North, which... Which, 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 which got both. It's got both issues. Where where, where we have both. But 
in most rural and urban settings in this country, there is food available. We have an economic problem. Yep. And that's not then just an economic problem with related to food that is significant. It's an economic problem with related to access to housing. It's an economic problem, access to support services for, as you said, marginalized people, mental health, addiction, all of those things that compromise people's ability to eat a healthy diet. Yeah. If that is first among equals in this list of four that you provided me, do we diminish our attention on that? Because really, fundamentally, both you and I agree that it's not a food issue. Yeah, so maybe we do. Maybe that's that's the risk. And maybe the food policy should be more about the production-oriented stuff, and we should ring-fence the economic access income-related and put that very firmly in the sites of social services, Health Canada, and stuff like that. Yeah, That would be a different strategy than is currently being discussed right now. I hope we're not making a mistake. Yeah, so, so conceptually, I, I get the idea of food policy entirely. I think that's a great idea. I just, to me, if we put too many things under it, we end up muddying the waters. So... We'll, um, we'll, we'll, we'll agree let, that that's an issue. Let, and we'll, let, and we'll let's, think, let's come back to this in a year's time and see, see what happens. See what happens. <laughs> so one of the things that, that I think we've seen historically is, and, and we've seen governments try to get at it. You know, we've seen the current federal government look at climate change and try and centralize some of those responsibilities into a single department. Do you expect we'll see the similar sorts of things happen with respect to a food policy? Or, I mean, sometimes you get conflict, you have conflicting priorities with different ministries, or sometimes you get a dilution of effort, even if we're all pulling in the same direction, you get a dilution of effort because you've got several different people doing it. Is there any discussion of sort of a ministry of food or, or yeah, does that make sense? A lot to talk about in that, in that question. And, and there's a difference between what I would engineer and what I'm predicting. Okay. <laughs> uh, what funny. I'm predicting, and, and we'll see, mm-hmm. is a series of program and areas, much like the ones we saw, basically yeah. the ones we saw in the budget, the budget yeah. uh, from a couple of weeks ago, that are then put under these four established pillars of the food policy, which, yeah. were, which, were, which was a, an architecture that the government presented Canadians with when they yeah. announced the process of con- yeah. consultation. And maybe the creation of a National Food Policy Council to act as a governing body to report the cabinet. That's, I think, where the government is. That's where my prediction is where we're heading. The one part of that that I don't feel confident about my prediction, and and it could go 50-50. I could break either way on this one. And we'll we'll talk in a couple weeks as to when the announcement's made, is whether they will actually create that policy council. They may simply just create program areas under these four headings wrap it up in a single coherent document with a, with a boilerplate front and a boilerplate back and call that the food policy for Canada. I don't know. If I was a bookie, I might give that the best odds. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I'd probably agree. Yeah. Um, the second best odds would be the creation of a national food policy council that acts as a sort of a quarterback mm-hmm. on the implementation of these, these different discrete projects and provides advice to cabinet. I haven't heard of anything more radical being discussed than that. All of that makes sense. And I think I would tend to agree with you as far as the odds. So if there was a bookie out there, you and I would be betting on the same thing. The (laughs) The last question I'll ask you is, in these four pillars, in your view, have we missed anything that is sort of critical to the broader food agenda in this country 
that we should be talking about relative to food, whether under the policy or not? Well, I, <laughs> yeah, the short answer is yes. And I don't know whether this is something that should belong in a food policy for Canada or is something completely outside of that. But I think it's really important. Okay. And that's the extent to which technology is about to, it hasn't quite yet, but I believe is about to really, really disrupt the food system from producer all the way through to consumer. And this is this you know, rapidly advancing suite of technologies that includes gene editing and cultured proteins all the way through to home delivery meal kits. And there's a number of, of yeah. very, very consistent underpinnings of oh, robotic tractors, smart yeah. packaging, this whole wave of digitization and big datafication, if I can yeah. use that as a word, yeah. which I think is about to really, really disrupt the system. For instance, if we can produce milk out of a test tube using cultured products, yeah. what does that say? How does the supply management system Respond to that. I I had an interesting conversation with a student the other day about exactly that. And I'm hoping to have a conversation in a future podcast, shameless (laughs) self-promotion, with some of those guys in California who are talking about sort of synthetic milk. Yeah. So if you can produce something that is chemically identical to milk, but does not involve a cow, is that in or out of the quota system? It's an interesting... I mean, this, this is Uber coming to the milk system. Yeah. And I don't, I mean, from novel ingredients that consumers are going to have to choose to accept, whether it's a, a an insect burger or whether it's a genetically modified hamburger or whether yeah. it's a whether it's a, t- a test tube steak, I mean, the consumer acceptance piece is going to be huge. Yes. Then there's the regulatory approval the regulatory. process is massive. Yeah. And then there's how the current producers and processors are going to adapt to this. Yeah. And, 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 it's, and it's building the infrastructure as we... To me, whether it's technology-driven or not, we have this sort of fracturing of food chains in that we have more niches. We have many more unique products. Just look at the well, grocery store. We have way more choice than we have ever had before. And build. I've spoken to producers where we have people who are willing to produce something. We have people who are willing to buy something. We just can't close the gap in between. Yeah. And so, so, so that becomes a significant challenge as well. And and I think this new agricultural revolution, we're calling it Ag 4.0 or the digital yeah. agricultural yeah. revolution, whatever, whatever phrase, uh, moniker you want to attach yeah. to it. It's fundamentally different than what happened about a hundred years ago in the green revolution. The green yes. revolution allowed farmers to go homogenous, plant the same seed across an enormous area, give it the same fertilizers, the same... We narrowed the range and differentiation and picked the top end of production. And now we're widening it because we're just offering consumers this much more choice. So, And and not only consumers' choice. I mean, now the smart tractor, or very soon the smart tractor, instead of managing 20,000 hectares in an identical way, We'll be managing each meter in a different way. Yeah. So the scale of management, instead of going homogenous, goes precision. Yeah. Diets, instead of being homogenous, goes precision nutrition, precision yeah. agriculture. This is yeah. this revolution is all about micromanaging little tiny choices, whether it's an agricultural choice or whether it's a nutritional choice or whether it's a dietary choice, uh, whether it's a supply chain. I mean, it's all about precise. Yeah. And so it's actually the opposite sort of effect yep. of the last one. And, and if you and I agree that this is this wave is coming, <laughs> we're sort of it's we're big. seeing it start to come and we're riding, we're on the board sort of on the initial edge of it. Yeah. But it's coming it's, and it's going to be big. 
are we missing the boat if we're silent on that? If, if you and I say this is the big, notwithstanding what we've already said about access, are we missing the boat there? Well, I mean, it depends on... Yeah, I mean, I, I, okay, here's my concern. I'm worried that Canada is about to miss the boat because I think this could be the next big thing. Yeah. Uh, I think that Canada should position itself for food and food mm-hmm. technology in exactly the same way that Silicon Valley and California positioned itself in the IT sector. Yeah. And that this is our opportunity because we as a nation have this tremendous uh, abundant land base. Yeah. We have a sophisticated workforce, a great infrastructure. Um, a stable regulatory and political environment. We've got a network of ag tech universities focused on aspects of this question. And I think that this represents an enormous opportunity to both produce more healthy and nutritious food while reducing the environmental footprint of farming. And contributing to a broader global food system. That's fit for the 21st century. fit for the 21st century because Canada can play a role in that. And will and will play will. a larger role, I think, yeah. than in the past if we play our cards right. And all of this stuff that we're talking about right now doesn't address the fact that there's still four million Canadians who are that, food and insecure, and they're food insecure because they're economically marginal, or they're living on remote First Nations reserves, or they're single moms struggling with addiction, or yeah. or whatever that yeah. complex array of social and economic problems. So we're we're, agree, we're agreeing vehemently here. I think. <laughs> you and I agree. I think that that's something we need to to keep as a priority. It's essentially. And I don't want it to get lost. Yeah. I think you're right. We have some strategic things we can do to make sure that we're at the forefront of that sort of precision or datafication or whatever we talk about it, that there's silent. Two things that, that, as we wrap up, that I haven't heard you say and that probably relate to all of it, climate change. I've heard you say it, but not in the context of the policy. It will affect this piece over here, the precision agriculture, it will also affect Canada's ongoing role as a, as a breadbasket, if you will. Mm-hmm. And the other thing is health. You know, we've seen the new food guide and the, how influential that is. But the way our relationship with food, the, the degree of processing and all of, all of those sorts of things, obesity, should those have been more explicit or are they, again, separate things? Yeah, I mean, should they be in there? I mean, should they be in the food policy for Canada? It's a diff- slightly different question than are they really important topics to talk about. Yeah. <laughs> they are absolutely important topics to talk about. I think on the issue of health and obesity, there is one of the four pillars in the proposed food policy addresses access to healthy nutrition for all. So they're putting so the so, government so the, access the, the, thing. the government has put healthy food and access to together. Yeah. Whether that's a mistake and whether those deserve separate treatments, we could debate. But that's, yeah. as I recall, that's how they that they put that they put those two together. They didn't really address climate change at all in the framework. Yeah. There is this thing about conserving soil and water resources and being more efficient about producing, but it, that's obliquely related to climate change, not directly related to climate yeah, change. Not explicitly. Not explicitly yeah. related yeah. to climate change. Yeah. yeah, but they're clearly really important on the climate change thing. Canada probably will benefit in the short term from a longer growing season if we can manage water and we can manage extreme, extreme rainfall. Weather. Yeah, extreme weather events. Yeah. Extreme weather events, particularly right. rainfall, I think is the really one we're most worried about. Yeah. But late frosts would be another one that yeah. can be devastating. And then the role of agriculture in addressing climate change, so being much more thrifty, 
with our inputs so that we reduce which gets the back to the precision which gets back to the precision stuff exactly yeah. so I, I think I think we can agriculture should shift from its current role which is sort of a victim and a source of the problem to a way of adapting to and reducing our greenhouse gas emissions and and I think I think we can that's a largely a technology play we can we can make agriculture more resilient we can take advantage of new growing seasons new growing conditions and we can absorb carbon from the atmosphere using different growing methods, robotic tractors that yeah. don't waste fertilizer, yeah. that, that kind of stuff. But again, we're not, we're not going to be addressing the fact that both obesity and undernutrition are rising in the world. Yes. Yeah. And so we're, we're back to that, that, that dilemma that we started our conversation on between access and production. So this is the amount of time I promised I would take of yours. <laughs> I, think, I think you and I could sit here all day and chat about this. I, I don't and so I will, I will hold you to it. We'll get back together in a year and say, how has it gone? Yep, sounds I good. I mean, it'll be after an election. We may... We may say it's gone. We may say it's, we may say it's gone or we may say it's evolved or, or whatever. And I will also be back in touch because I think this wave that we talked about, the intensific, the precision agriculture datafication is something I'd love to have a, a yeah. more detailed chat about with you. But thanks. I learned some stuff. I expected we may have differences of opinion on some of these things but in the end i think you and i think very similarly on yeah, these feels that way and and it I, th I think it'll be interesting to watch uh, what is it the chinese curse may you live in interesting times well, i we, think we are we are, we are living in interesting we are time. living in interesting times so thank you very much evan right, and look forward fine. to chatting again sounds good wrap up another episode of Fruit Focus, I thought I would just take a quick moment to thank Molly Gallant, who really does the heavy lifting in producing this podcast. She does all the hard work. I get to have the interesting discussions. Thank Zachary Von Massow for the original music. Before we go, I'd like to remind you again about our foodfocusguelph.ca website. Check out our blog, updated at least weekly. Check out previous versions of the podcast. Check out our trends report and get in touch with us. Food Focus at uoguelph.ca. We'd love to have you send us comments, ideas, suggestions, and just to interact and hear what you're thinking about. Finally, if you like the podcast, please take a moment to rate us wherever you get your podcast as this helps other people find us. So thanks again. Hope you enjoyed it and looking forward to talking to you again soon. Bye-bye.